Our topic today is on guard, the role of the lay elder in guarding the church and its pastors. And uh, that's just a comment to make is that both Phil and I are actually lay elders. Neither of us have an MDiv, much less a doctorate. Uh, both of us have full-time jobs, which are not at Grace Community Church. I'm a corporate lawyer at a biotech company, and Phil is the head of Grace to You, a worldwide ministry, which keeps him extremely busy. We're not paid to uh, preach and teach at Grace Community Church or to shepherd the flock here, but we do so out of great joy as fellowship group pastors. And one of the things, in fact, that I admire greatly about Phil is his shepherd's heart for the people of Grace Life, his fellowship group. Uh, it's a side of him that strangers on the Internet can't see, but I see it and the people here see it, and we praise God for that. Now, the topic of guarding the flock is a crystal clear duty of elders in Scripture. Uh, there's certainly the topic of guarding on doctrine, uh, uh, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. That's Titus 1.9. Uh, there's uh, talking about guarding the flock uh, generally. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's Acts 20.28. Even in that same verse, you see this notion of guarding other elders, that Paul calls the elders to be on guard for yourselves, uh, to look out for them. Uh, we know elsewhere in Scripture this applies even to the notion of compensation. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. That's 1 Timothy 5, 17. We're to guard against false teachers from within. We see that in 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. And in particular, we're called to uh, guard against those who would captivate and take advantage of women. We see that in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9. We are to guard holiness and to guard purity. We see that in Matthew 18 on church discipline. We see that in 1 Corinthians 5 on rejecting sexual immorality. We're to guard against worldly fables and worldly chatter and worldliness in general. We see that in 1 Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 6, 1 John 2. We're to guard the unity of the church. Uh, that's a general call to all believers in Philippians 1, 27 through 2, 11. Uh, and elders are to lead in that regard. And we also see specific portraits of elders guarding unity in Acts chapter 6, chapter 15, and chapter 20. And there are indeed other ways that elders are to guard. But I think that's enough of a general kind of overview for now. Um, what we're going to be doing is, this wasn't explicitly stated in the conference program, but uh, this session was billed to me as a Q&A, and so we're going to go ahead and stick with that. And uh, given that I credit Phil's writings and preaching for helping to form much of my own Christian worldview, I imagine he'll be answering most of the questions, and I'll just try to provide a little comic relief uh, here. Not true. I, I'm going to defer to him as much as possible. <laughs> well, we'll see how it goes. In fact, I have to leave early, too. Uh, so just I'll tell you now, in case uh, you wonder why I'm walking out, at 10 after, I have a plenary session over there. They have to mic me up and all of that. So I'm going to leave a few minutes before we're done in here. So if you have specific questions for me, ask them early. And uh, I will actually be staying afterwards a bit if you have questions. And that actually, I have a few standard Q&A admonitions that I'd like to give. I'd like to ask that you please try to make sure that the questions are of general applicability that would benefit the room. Uh, and if you do have a very fact-specific scenario, please come. Uh, you know, I'm happy to talk and stay afterwards and talk to you afterwards. Um, Phil mentioned that he's going to be heading out a bit early, uh, so please respect that. Um, please keep your questions relatively brief. Please make sure you're actually asking a question. <laughs> I've had nope, a number of, no preaching. <laughs> I've had a number of people in the past that may have a specific uh, commentary on some pet uh, issue of theirs, and uh, feel free to take to your own social media for that. And uh, 
And uh, the last uh, request I would have is that uh, let's try to get a diversity of questions, if possible, on the broad topic of elders and guarding. So with that, I think I'm going to kick us off with uh, one question, and then we'll start the open Q&A. Uh, Phil, on the topic of guarding unity, what do you think of the classically American idea that lay elders need to serve as some kind of check and balance on the pastor? Well, there is some truth in that, because if the pastor is going to be accountable uh, and particularly in uh, – it depends on the – of course, the ecclesiology of whatever denomination or church you belong to. But the pastor needs to be directly accountable to someone in the church, not just to some denominational hierarchy out there. But the first uh, level of accountability, of course, is to the people he ministers to. And lay elders have a particular sort of uh, uh, duty in that regard because they are the ones who work with, support, and uh, deal with the pastor. So – uh, if an issue needs to be addressed, the duty falls to them first of all to do it. But they shouldn't look at themselves as, uh, you know, sort of corporate bosses over the pastor either. He is, he is, uh, as the pastor teacher, or you might call him senior pastor, or whatever. He he has been uh, designated with a specific duty to deliver the word of God and teach. And uh, if you're going to challenge him on something, you'd better be absolutely sure that it's not just some petty, paltry matter of preference on your own, but but something that he really needs to be confronted on. Every pastor, and you guys know this because you're pastors, every one of us, uh, the minute we step out of the pulpit, are usually hit with questions and challenges from people who, you know, maybe just don't understand or whatever, but pastors get enough negative feedback without uh, lay elders thinking it's their particular duty to to constantly fill his ears with concerns and questions. And yet, if he does need to be, I mean, we've seen this most recently, let's be honest, with James McDonald, uh, when a pastor does need to be called to account and uh, and questioned about something that is manifestly unbiblical or... or uh, disqualifying in the character of the man, then, uh, again, the duty falls, first of all, I think, to the lay elders. So fair to say on serious issues relating to maybe moral issues or character qualification or doctrinal issues? Right, specifically those things that are spelled out in Scripture as the qualifications of a of a pastor, you know, if he's pugnacious or uh, shows an undue love of money or you know, any of the things that would disqualify him from being a pastor, you need to confront him about that. Do it privately, of course, at first and follow the, the guidelines that you would follow in any case where you're confronting sin. But um, do that. Excellent. All right. At this point, I'm going to open this to uh, the open audience. If you want to, you could just come uh, up to this uh, area here and ask your question and uh, we'll uh, summarize it as well for you. But uh, we'll do our best to try to answer. And, Please and don't be shy. While you're coming up, too, let me add to that last answer. Yeah. It, it is when I say it's first of all the lay elders' duty. If they do their job, then they're actually doing the pastor a favor because otherwise, when things get out of control, and again, you've seen this in several high-profile cases uh, over the past few years, when things get out of control, there's always a group of bloggers out there that are going to come after the guy. And uh, that's not really right or fair or the way that sin should be dealt with in the church. It is the duty of the of the men who uh, who've been who've had hands laid on them and and they've been tasked with the duty of guarding the purity of their church and their pastor and the doctrine and the character of the men in leadership. It's your duty, first of all, um, not some 
anonymous blogger out there. Yeah, and just to reemphasize what you said, you know, we're not talking about ticky-tack issues, about matters of preference, about I mean, look, you're you're in particular your senior pastor, your preaching pastor is the one who's going to be shepherding the flock every week from the pulpit and, you know, there's going to be a sense of 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 leadership, of of a sense of of taking things forward and I think, you know, in on a lot of matters, uh, we often do and, and of course John has earned it over 50 years plus of, of ministry, uh, you know, we, we do have a desire to defer to our beloved senior pastor because he has shown himself to be faithful as his conference. Uh, that's the theme of this conference. All right, you know, I'm going to switch it up, actually. Go ahead and just raise your hands, and we'll just repeat uh, rather than kind of making you come up here. I think I saw your hand first. So practically, what does an uh, elder meeting at Grace look like? Do you want to take the first step? You know, I skip more of them than you do. Maybe you should answer that. <laughs> Well, uh, I want to uh, recommend your attention. There was a session on Tuesday that Chris Hamilton, the chairman of our board of elders, gave uh, on eldership. Um, that was a Tuesday seminar, and it was excellent. And, uh, you know, he actually goes into a number of these types of discussions. But, uh, you know, ultimately, our, our meetings, uh, we have eight meetings a week that are prayer – I'm sorry, eight meetings a month. I apologize. Uh, before every Sunday service in the morning and in the evening, we have a prayer meeting. And, uh, you know, the, the elders are to be uh, doing the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer, that those are two emphases we see in Scripture. So we get together to pray before every service on Sunday. So that's eight or nine times, uh, you know, eight or ten times a, uh, a month. On top of that, we have a kind of a business meeting once a month, and that's usually on the third Thursday of each month. And we gather together and we talk about various issues. And, uh, you know, we have a high-level, very high-level financial report. We have uh, a discussion about uh, the pastor's report is one that's really – it's one reason why we have a number of people visiting our elders' meetings is to hear Pastor John talk about matters that are on his heart. And uh, that's really a highlight of the meeting. It could go for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, 60 minutes uh, sometimes, and it's really a wonderful time just to glean wisdom. Phil. Yeah, by the way, those meetings, those monthly business meetings, uh, have two parts. The first part is open to anyone who wants to attend. We meet in a room, uh, in a building over there, just a couple of buildings away, but the room is about this size, maybe a little smaller than this, and there's an arrangement of tables that are set up in a, I would say a circle, but it's really a rectangle, so that we're all sort of looking at each other. It and uh, the elders sit at those tables, and then there are rows of seats on either end where visitors sit, and they can hear John's report and the financial report and all those sorts of things. Then we have prayer together, and the elders join in prayer with the lay people who are there to visit. We have a time of prayer, and then the public part of the meeting is over, and we usually have a few details then that have to be addressed that can't be done publicly, salary issues, sometimes discipline issues. If you're in the early stages of discipline, it's not time to tell it to the church. You, you don't want to do that in a public meeting. So we deal with those issues in a more private setting. Uh, but by the time the public meeting is over, most of the elders meeting is over. And uh, uh, so we try to keep them short. When I first came to Grace, uh, I've been here now 36 years, this week is the anniversary of when I first came, and it was about this rainy then, too. And um, uh, But I remember coming. I, I was in an unusual position at the time because in those days, it was 1983, Grace Church had almost never hired anybody onto the church staff from outside of the church. You had to be a layperson in the church working, involved in ministry, and when that ministry became too much for you to handle as a layperson, they would basically 
bring you on staff and you kept doing the ministry you'd been proving yourself in. And, and there were a few rare examples. Clayton Herb had come about a year and a half before me. Dick Mayhew had come just the year before me. And so I was the third person in a row who had been hired onto the church staff from outside. I worked at Moody Press. I'd edited a couple of books for John MacArthur. He liked my work. He said, you should quit your job here at Moody and come to work for me. And I said, okay. And he said, no, I'm serious. And I said, yeah, I am too. <laughs> so and at the time, Grace to You, the radio ministry and tape ministry was, was a division. That was two, two separate divisions of Grace Church. The radio ministry, the tape ministry, and uh, that's where uh, that's where I originally got plugged in, and I've been there ever since. Uh, we spun off, so now Grace to use a separate organization. But at the time, the elders had oversight, so they had to hire me if I was going to be hired. And they flew me out here to give my testimony, and uh, all the lay elders were there, and they heard it, and they asked some very pointed questions. And I got a first my first first-hand experience of how the lay elders at Grace Church guard the church. They were not necessarily what to them it was i mean john macarthur knew me but to the lay elders it wasn't really a given that they were going to hire me they wanted to know who i was what i was doing and i came to the elders meeting that night gave my testimony answered all their questions and then they dismissed me from the meeting and uh, i went down to the fireside room which in those days was just like a lounge with a couch now it's a place where you go and eat but um I laid on a couch there, and I was on Chicago time, so it was much later in my head than it was here, and I fell asleep. And uh, the next thing I knew, John MacArthur was waking me up and saying, okay, the meeting's over, it's time to go. I looked at my watch, it was 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> and I knew that I was the only, you know, controversial thing on the agenda that night. <laughs> so I said, it was that bad, was it? He said, oh, we had a thorough discussion. And, uh, uh, and, and as I learned after coming on staff, uh, elders meetings in those years frequently went to the wee hours of the morning. It wasn't really all that unusual for a meeting to last till 2 or 3 a.m. Uh, and somewhere around 1990, all the elders were older and John was older and we had a little more sanity and, and somebody said, Really, do the meetings have to go till 2 a.m.? And nowadays, we're out typically by 9, yeah. wouldn't you think? Yeah, and I would also add that over the years, uh, there has been, uh, and again, I recommend the Tuesday session with Chris Hamilton, there has been an increasing delegation over the years to a uh, incredibly capable and trustworthy staff here. So, you know, we wouldn't necessarily do a lot of hiring and firing decisions, uh, you know, here at the elder board level, but a lot of times... Yeah, I don't think we happen. do that at all anymore, exactly. do we? So, yeah. um, you know, that would be an example of one of the things where we can delegate certain things uh, to uh, a trustworthy uh, subgroup. And, uh, you know, we also have in the closed portion of the meeting, I think this is really important. It's a shepherding report where we talk about members that um, you know maybe we haven't seen in a while, and, and that's a really sweet time. It's it's not church discipline, which is a separate discussion, but you know it's just look. These are people we love and care for, and uh, we, there was a very capable man named Justin Harris who a number of years ago helped to implement our kind of membership system in terms of our uh, attendance reports and things like that, and that's been a real boon to us in terms of shepherding the flock of God and and just trying to make sure hey this we haven't heard from this person in. Six Six weeks, uh, can an elder reach out to that person? So um, that's another part of our elder meeting. So we try to focus it on prayer, discussion of the word, and uh, shepherding the flock as much as possible. Question back there. One more thing, too. Those meetings always start with a hymn. 
That's a very kind so way to, of saying it, by the way. To, to repeat the question, and again, I would just, uh, you know, to summarize, uh, the, you know, the question, what's, you know, in terms of the relationship between Phil and John, and uh, Phil often uh, serving John in terms of uh, trying to uh, speak uh, in certain cases for him or, or to protect him, and uh, I think that's, again, a perfect question for this topic of uh, guarding. Yeah, thanks, and that, that is a very kind way of saying it. Um, the answer, if... If you wonder, you know, am I assigned the role of pit bull for, that's how most people say it. He's, he's, yeah, well, it wouldn't have offended me. I've heard it so often, but he's John's pit bull. Uh, who assigned me that role? Nobody did. And, and that's definitely, I think John might wish sometimes that he had a few chihuahuas rather than a pit bull. <laughs> but. And, and nor does he ever instruct me or advise me on what to say other than sometimes when he says, you really ought to tone that down, uh, so, which I, I need every now and then, I'll confess. But uh, no, I haven't been assigned that role. I, I just I, I'm close to John. I see his life and his character close up. And when I see people attacking him in unfair ways or even in, in some cases just lying about him or or publishing innuendo that makes it sound like, you know, is something questionable here and all that. Uh, it is typically my response to come to his defense. Uh, I'm not the only one who does that, but uh, maybe the loudest one. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think that's exactly one of the things that uh, if you're a faithful lay elder and you have, you see someone attacking your pastor unfairly, then yeah, you better come to his defense. That's right. And again, we saw it in Acts 20, 28, you know, in terms of be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. And I think there is a level of unity that's displayed here. I think there's, look, we are to love each other, right? That's one way the outside world will know us is by our love for one another. And, uh, you know, I think that one way we can show love is by speaking up for the truth when someone is slandered or reviled. Yeah. And just to be clear, it's not just John. I'll say this. Nobody at Grace Church has ever instructed me to go out there and do anything on the Internet or otherwise uh, to be a spokesman on behalf of the church. If I get any kind of guidance from anybody on staff or on the elder board, it's usually a, a, a request to tone it down. <laughs> So the question is, how do you shepherd or reach out to or handle kind of families or people that uh, maybe haven't have stopped showing up? Uh, well, in terms of how we do that, again, when we when we see a report, uh, the report, and it's like this person hasn't been around for a while, we go around the table. Right now, we have about 43 elders, and uh, you know, you're going to get the significant majority of them at any given meeting. And it's just, hey, does anyone know this person? And invariably, someone's going to raise their hand or say they know them, and it's rare that we don't have anyone that knows them. And so that elder will go ahead and reach out with uh, to the contact information we have on file. And look, sometimes uh, we never get a, you know we can't reach them, and they never come back to us, and they kind of ghost us, uh, as the term goes. And, and and sometimes, many times, it's like, wow, that's so great that you call. I'm really, you know, it's really, uh, you know, there's a sl small minority that might be like taken aback, but you know, most people are really thankful that. Uh, the elders would care enough to reach out to them. And so that's usually a very positive interaction. And oftentimes it's just something like, oh, yeah, you know, we've been traveling or, oh, yeah, you know, I, I have been attending. I just, you know, I forgot to drop a registration card in or check an attendance box. And it's really uh, it's really a lovely uh, uh, opportunity. And again, it's a it's a way to show that we care. Yes, over here. Yes, you, sir. So the question is for smaller churches, uh, you know, what are some things that um, lay elders might be able to do administratively to help the pastor out, uh, especially from those kind of administrative tasks? 
Um, is that and managing staff? Yeah, in fact, that's uh, that, I would say by principle one of the things you see in Acts chapter six, where the apostles said, "Look, we we can't be waiting tables. You need to assign some people to do this sort of work so that we can devote ourselves to the Word of God and prayer." And uh, that's, I think, the ideal thing. Of course, it depends on the nature of the church, the nature of how many elders you have, how many staff people you have. But I would say insofar as they can do it, uh, that's that's something the lay elders probably ought to do to take the burden of administration off the shoulders of their teaching pastor. I give a hearty amen to that, and I would even add to Phil's point, in Acts 6, that's actually a deacon job, too, in many cases, in terms of waiting tables. And if you can find some capable deacons to help with the load, especially on administrative tasks or, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, acting as shock absorbers in the church, I've heard it termed, uh, you know, just uh, being able to free up the elders for word and prayer. You know, look, I mean, it'd be great if the deacons could free up your lay elders, too, for that task. So I think that's a great question. Yes, sir. Oh, go ahead, Phil. So, so the question, uh, great, great question. And the question is, you know, in terms of standing up as men to, you know, to speak on a certain issue and then receiving criticism that, oh, you're not nice. Yeah. And I'm glad you asked that because that's exactly what I'm going to be talking about in the plenary session next hour. There's a balance in scripture in telling us to be bold, be contending for the faith and yet also be gentle and, uh, so I'm going to talk about that balance and how to achieve it. And as you know from experience, sometimes it's subjective. And no matter what you do, uh, if you take a stand for the truth, there are going to be people in this culture who tell you, you've stepped over the line. Now you, you, you're the problem because you're trying to correct something. Um, so you have to learn when to listen to that and really take it to heart and when to stand and, and still be bold. Uh, and I will talk about that a bit in the next hour. And I appreciate that question too because I think there's this postmodern notion that love equals nice, right? And, and I think, look, uh, there's been some discussion here about the Q&A that happened yesterday. And what I appreciated about that Q&A is that there were six men on that stage and they're able to discuss issues. And sometimes, you know, when you're talking about issues, you, 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 there may be disagreement. There may be even uh, some awkwardness. Well, again – this, this postmodern notion of avoiding awkwardness as some kind of ultimate goal, that's not the case. Sometimes these discussions can be awkward. And I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that as we seek a biblical truth on certain issues, you're going to have some, some, some disagreements. Thank you for that question. Yes, sir, up front. So the question relates to past experiences at Grace and some difficult times that Pastor John has spoken of. And what are some times where, uh, in terms of our desire to protect, uh, maybe it didn't quite go as expected? Phil, uh, you've been here a lot longer than I have, so I'd love to hear you. Yeah, do you want me to talk about specific ones? I'm probably not the best expert on that because uh, uh, there there have been a couple of times when trying to deal with issues in the church, uh, the things I've done maybe inflamed it a little bit. I, I think of the... The issue with Gary Ezzo when he, he was a he, he had a parenting um, class that he taught here that became sort of a worldwide phenomenon, and uh, and yet there were some questions about his character and things he said and the believability and the accuracy of some of the things he taught, and he had left Grace Church but was continuing to sort of uh, bolster his own credibility by his previous connection with Grace Church. And, and then that turned to, uh, when he, when he didn't get pure affirmation from our elders, 
uh, he began to become very critical of Grace Church. And so, uh, we felt at one point we need to make a public statement. Even though we didn't discipline him, he wasn't excommunicated or anything like that. It, there needed to be a public statement of non-support for some of the things he was teaching because they were, they were dangerous. And I mean, physically dangerous, even in some cases to infants. And so there, there was a lot of controversy about his teachings in the secular press. And Grace Church's name kept getting dragged into it. And so I volunteered to write the statement. And uh, uh, if I had to do that situation over again, I think I might – that's one of those places where I probably would tone down the uh, the force of the statement that we published because it, for a time there, inflamed the controversy rather than resolving it. And uh, you learn some of those things by experience, I think. You may not believe this, those of you who read me online, but but age and time have mellowed me. So, and and I would I've been an elder here for almost uh, not quite five years, and uh, look, one of the things I appreciate about uh, this church and the elders is just that uh, there's just a, a a conviction and a desire to do things in a biblically honorable way. And, uh, you know, of course we're human beings and we fall short just as any human beings will. But, uh, you know, as I sit here before you, I can say, at least with the decisions that I've been involved in here while I've been an elder here, uh, I, I praise the Lord and thanks to him for having a clear conscience about these matters. And look, it may be that there is some kind of, uh, you know, thing from the further past where, uh, maybe we swayed too far like Phil was alluding to, but, uh, you know, um, we could have gone more to the left or to the right, but, uh, you know, we, we just praise the Lord for, um, just the word of God and, and for the ability, even it says throughout the new Testament, there are so many times where it says that Christians are capable of having a clear conscience on various issues or towards certain people. And, uh, I think that should be our striving as ministers. So the question is, how are elders appointed here, and is it, is it for a term of time, and are there specific areas of um, uh, uh, ministry. Yeah, ministry? Yes. Well, elders are – anybody can nominate someone for eldership, but uh, uh, the, the process of scrutiny is pretty careful here. And the standard is certainly higher at Grace Church, I think than it would be at most churches. One of the obvious qualifications, one of the first qualifications for an elder, the distinctive qualification, is he has to be able to teach, gifted to teach. And so before anyone could become an elder here, he would have to be involved in a teaching ministry. And usually that wouldn't be just a living room Bible study these days because there's so many gifted teachers around here that the standard, the standard is certainly higher here than it would be in a, any church of 150 people. So, uh, but that's, that's the first thing. He has to be involved in ministry and, and in some significant form of ministry so that the rest of the elders actually know who this guy is. They've been able to observe his ministry and, uh, and then a nominee like that then would be discussed by the full board of elders. And normally it used to be that we added elders only once at the annual meeting in January. Lately, we, uh, we've pretty much added elders as they've come up. A, a guy will come like, we, we, uh, well, I won't give a specific example, but suppose, suppose somebody comes on staff and we know his work, we know his abilities, maybe he's a seminary graduate, he's proven himself as a teacher, he might be sort of fast tracked, uh, to the elder board but with the affirmation of the full board. Uh, it's not voted on by the congregation. The congregation affirm 
the elders and the deacons every year, but the process of scrutiny that everybody goes through is sort of managed uh, more by the elders themselves. And a um, um, person would be an elder until he disqualifies himself or dies. That's right. Yeah, or, or steps or steps down voluntarily. Right. Um, and in terms of areas of ministry, uh, you know, typically we we do have with forty three elders, there really has to be a sense of deference in many in many ways and in many areas because we we don't typically have uh, you know an elder being the kind of nail sticking up uh, all the time or the or the the um, needing uh, needing to assert himself or opine on every single matter. It really would be a, I think it would be a non-functional board if we had elders do that. But out of a spirit of humility, you know, we, we try to leave this and delegate to the elders who are, uh, at least informally responsible for a certain area. And we have elders that are, uh, assigned to the fellowship groups here. We have elders that are assigned to the echo board over missions. We have elders assigned to the grace advance board. We have, uh, you know, elders on the audit, on the finance committee board and the, and, and things of that nature. And so there is a healthy spirit of deference, uh, you know, on these types of matters. That's not to say an elder couldn't, you know, privately ask questions or anything like that. But generally speaking, if we're getting up to the board level, uh, there's going to be, yeah, we, we trust these men. And again, this is the importance of scriptural unity that we talk about here. And uh, I think that to the extent that someone would need to assert themselves on every single issue, that, that could be a, potentially a real pride issue. It works remarkably well, too, by the way. I've been here 36 years and I couldn't, I couldn't name I don't recall any major conflicts that uh, have ever gone, you know, through multiple board meetings. So when when we meet, we resolve whatever differences we might have and and move on. And uh, controversy isn't and never ha- really has been a problem amongst the elders at Grace Church. Yep. Yes. Yeah, I mean, church discipline is is vital. It's it's commanded in Scripture in Matthew eighteen. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Phil. So the question is, how? What role does church discipline play in the church and in uh, guarding the purity of the church? Uh, and, and yeah, it is indeed vital. It's a command in Matthew eighteen, and uh, just really. Uh, I think that the concept really is one of regenerate church membership in many ways that uh, we – and it's it's a philosophy that has been corrupted I think by a lot of worldly seeker-friendly attitudes where, oh, let's draw as many people as we can into the church so that uh, you know we can uh, preach the gospel to them and then maybe they'll stick around. And But what happens is without that sense of church discipline, without that purity of the church, you get a completely – polluted church and the holiness of the church is is sacrificed and the witness of the church as a result of that is corrupted and it's really uh that seeker friendly model uh you know you've spoken on this at length phil so well you have to you have to go by what scripture says too rather than common sense and uh, uh or what you think is common sense and uh you know the the disposition of the culture in which we live, it's counterintuitive to most of us. You think, well, if we do church discipline, that's going to run everybody off. And in fact, you've probably heard John talk about how when he brought up the issue of Matthew 18, church discipline, we need to practice this. The the men who were elders at that time, this was decades before my time, uh, they some of them said to him, you can't do that. You run, you run people off. And John's response was, but Scripture tells us to do it. We have to do it. I had been a Christian since 1971, came here in 1983, uh, and I'd been a member of two very large churches. One of them was Moody Church in Chicago. That was the church I was a member of before I came here. Um, and 
I don't recall that they ever did church discipline. I'm sure that they quietly had to excommunicate some people. It was never told to the church in all my recollection. So when I came to Grace, it was the first church I'd ever been part of that practiced discipline. And I kind of had that same attitude in my head that that's kind of a risky thing to do. It's going to run people off. It's going to stir up controversy. And yet the way it's handled and and in practice, it actually works out quite well. If we have to tell it to the church, that's typically done in connection with uh, a communion service. Just before the elements are served, John is praying, and he'll say, now we have a couple of issues to deal with here. We turn off the live stream, so you can't watch this if you're out there, but it's told to the church, to the local congregation. Uh, and it's, it's usually very brief. So-and-so uh, has committed adultery against his wife or whatever. And, um, and the sin is described in just broad terms like that, not any detail. And um, he's been confronted. He's been confronted by multiple witnesses, and he still refused to repent. So that's step three. You tell people, this is the situation. If you know this guy, go to him, plead with him, call him to repentance. And if he still refuses to repent, then there's step four where he is put out of the church. That's also announced at communion. And um, it's that's been practiced that way at Grace Church now for probably four decades straight. And, uh, and there, it has never created any significant problems. It does help keep the church pure and holy. People are very serious about it. And, uh, I can tell you how many cases I've dealt with where I've had to go and confront someone for some, somebody is, you know, drinking or gambling or doing something dissolute lifestyle. You confront him and say, and, and they'll sometimes ask, is this going to become a church discipline thing? And I, and the answer is, if you persist in your sin, yes. And just the fear of, of, of that, the sin being publicly exposed and having to be dealt with that way, often is an incentive that helps drive people to repentance. Absolutely. And to your point, uh, doing it at communion, it's a very sobering time, you know, as we even examine ourselves to see whether we should take communion or let the elements pass uh, for having some issue. And, uh, yeah, it's really, um, it's really um, critical, I would say, to the life of the church. Yeah, you in the very back. That is a great question. It how is. do you how do you guard the teaching at the lowest level? You know, Sunday school teachers, home Bible studies, things like that. Uh, the the only answer to that is the whole church has to be well taught. You know, I uh, it, just in the fellowship group I pastor, we have I think five hundred people on the membership roll, so it's the size of a you know medium sized church, and we have probably I would guess close to twenty home Bible studies. Most of them overseen by a team that consists of one seminary student and one lay person, because the lay person doesn't move on. The seminary guy is going to graduate in four years, and he's going to have to be replaced. Uh, so we want some stability, but we also want somebody who's gifted to teach, studying to teach, learning to teach. And so often the seminary student is the one who does the most teaching. But everybody in that Bible study is scrutinizing his teaching. If it doesn't correspond to what I've taught, what John MacArthur has taught, I'll hear about it. And I depend on people to – I can't go and attend every Bible study and hear what everybody is teaching. But if your people are well taught, they're going to reflect back to you with questions if they hear something that isn't – you know, corresponding to what they've heard elsewhere, or if it sounds weird or whatever. And you do occasionally get questions like that. 
That, that's exactly right. And I would add that uh, one thing that I want to point out is that when we do our membership uh, applications, we have a document here that uh, lends our doctrinal statement, and it's, it's titled What We Teach. And so what we do is that with the members here, we don't require thought conformity to every aspect of the doctrinal statement. What we require is a credible Christian profession of faith. You know, a brand new believer, they're not going to know, you know, the, the three quarters of the things in that doctrinal statement necessarily. But what they're affirming is, look, I affirm that I, I believe Jesus Christ and I, I is the, is the savior and, and that I have repented and believe in Christ. And, and they give their testimony. They try to make sure they can give a gospel presentation. And so we seek regenerate church membership in that way. But we don't have a what we believe document, right? Because, again, we trust that over the course of time, these believers will be sanctified and they will come to a better and better understanding of the truth. It says what we teach because we do expect that no one here will be teaching against the doctrinal statement. And that's uh, that's actually what we do. Uh, and a lot of times when word comes back to us, like Phil was saying, because it does inevitably get back to us at some point that this person is way off the reservation. I remember a good friend of mine was telling me a story one time about kind of this rogue Bible study where the leaders were denouncing MacArthur and and denouncing, you know, many points of doctrine on a relatively regular basis. And, you know, that that did not persist, we'll just say. It's a great question. The question relates to the ability of lay elders to perhaps take some of the more difficult shepherding or church discipline matters off of the teaching pastor's plate. And, uh, you know, that is something that we, uh, I would say the vast majority of the church discipline cases we have are uh, involving a, a number of lay elders. Actually. Yeah. In fact, uh, I would say it's, it, it'd be very unusual for John MacArthur to be involved in the discipline process uh, prior to stage three. When it comes to the elders and we vote yes uh, this person's name needs to be read. That's often the first time John may learn about it, unless it's someone who's directly in the circle of his acquaintance and he knows about the, the issue. It would be unusual to bring him into the process of discipline prior to stage three. Another question. Way in the back over there. So the question is, are the elders reaffirmed every year, and is there any kind of like training or refreshing process? Um, I'm no, Good. we've tried that a few times. Like uh, somebody raised that question maybe 15 years ago. Should we have an elder evaluation every year? And so they tried that where they'd send uh, the, the uh, each elder out of the room while the others discussed him. And uh, that didn't go real well. <laughs> because there is such a level of trust among the elders of Grace Church. We know each other. We love each other. If if one of my fellow elders developed an issue that I thought might disqualify him uh, long before it became a disqualifying issue, I would go to him and say, you know, brother, I'm concerned about this. Maybe you should you step off the board as an active board member until you, this issue is dealt with and uh, and then deal with it privately like that at any time, not just at the end of the year when we affirm elders, but any time something like that comes up. And those kinds of things happen with a fair amount of regularity. Every year or two, we'll have an elder who will say, uh, you know, I'm not going to serve this year because we've got a family issue that I need to devote my time to. It doesn't necessarily mean there's sin in his life, but something else that now takes the priority over shepherding the church for a time and then when he's ready to come back, he gets the consensus of the rest of the elders and he'll rejoin the board. I've actually, I think twice, uh, stepped off the board for at least a year at a time, once, maybe two years. 
and, and I would say just the 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 act and and work of the eldering and the eldership is something that will keep most of the men pretty sharp, you know, in terms of engaged in shepherding and engaged in teaching of the Word of God. And you know, I know speaking for myself, uh, some of my richest times in the Word of God are are you know in preparation for teaching. And uh, you know, I think that uh, that is a pretty common experience among most of the elders here. And and to Phil's point, to the extent that there is kind of a, an apparent issue developing, or even someone noticing something in a personal relationship with an elder. Whether it's an elder or someone even in the congregation, I, have, I really have no doubt that uh, people will voice those concerns. Uh, we really do our best not to have a. Uh, you've, Pastor John has a has a clip that has been aired many many times that talks about it. You know what what authority do you have as a pastor? And he said, I, I have none except uh, the Word of God, of course. And, and really, I think uh, we really strive not to be heavy handed, and uh, that that's uh, a real striving here at, at our church among the elders. I know. Maybe on this side of the room, anyone? You, you, you sir. So the question is, how do you handle theological differences on an elder board? Yeah, normally, I mean, at Grace, because it's such a large church, so many potential elders, you pretty much have to uh, agree, jot and tittle with our doctrinal statement in order to be an elder, because you're going to be teaching, and this is what we teach. Uh, so Grace would be a... But I, I frequently get this question from smaller churches... Uh, we have two or three men who qualify to be elders, but their eschatology is different from mine, you know. And I, my answer to that would vary with the circumstances. I'm not one of those sticklers who doesn't want anybody around me who doesn't see the dispensational chart in the same order that I have it, you know. Uh, I, I it, it's not easy. It's not very difficult to provoke me into a theological argument, unless you want to argue about eschatology, and I, I'm. Uh, you know, so many other people, that's the first thing they want to know about you. And I'm always wary of people like that, frankly. I, people who, for, who, for whom that's the most important issue, it just seems to me that's a signal right off the top that their priorities are askew. Uh, so if it's somebody who's like totally passionate about this, this, uh, eschatological point of view that contradicts your doctrinal statement especially or contradicts the senior pastor's view i would never have him as an elder because he's going to use uh, whatever teaching opportunities you get him give him to push that agenda but if it's somebody who in fact we did in in one circumstance that i know several years ago have w- one elder who whose uh, eschatology was i think he was a historic premillennialist rather than a you know yeah futuristic Premillennialist, and uh, uh, there was some discussion. Should should we make an exception in this case? He was an exceptional man, and and uh, so we did. But with the with the caveat that he's not to teach on that issue. And if people ask him questions about it, he needs to just defer and say, "Look, I I, I don't want to get into that. This is the teaching of the church on that exactly." Right. And I echo Phil. I mean, it's it's critical. I mean, to the extent that you've already got an elder on the elder board and there's an agreed upon doctrinal statement as a matter of integrity, you certainly cannot teach against, you know, what everybody is agreed this church's doctrinal statement is. And, uh, you know, to the extent that there is an unwillingness to do that, I think that there needs to be a conversation about that because it's not that the church is not a place to kind of take your pet issues forward. The church is a place where we are to come together in unity, and one of the key aspects of unity for any local body is going to be what they believe. Yes, you in front. So the question is, how do you guard the back door in terms of if a family or a person wants to leave the church? Yeah, we do that through the shepherding 
process. That's that's the point of uh, in that private session of our monthly elders meetings. We usually get a spreadsheet that takes the attendance reports and it just flags people who haven't been here in five or six weeks, you know. And then the question comes up, who's shepherding this person? Whose fellowship group is this person in? And then one or two elders who have a connection to that person will be assigned to contact them and find out, is there anything we can do for you? We notice you haven't been here. What's the deal? Uh, we wouldn't, I don't think, discipline someone only for lack of attendance. Uh, and we don't, we don't require our approval if somebody's moving to a different church. They, they can withdraw their, uh, their membership and, and go to a different fellowship. But we don't want them just to be left in limbo or leave the church completely. So we'll follow up directly with them. Usually if they're just leaving the church, it's not because they just got fed up with church attendance. It's usually because there's some sin in their life. And if we're going to address it, that's what we address. If they're going to be disciplined, they're going to be disciplined for the sin that's provoking them to withdraw from fellowship rather than just from withdrawing from fellowship. I know there are other churches that don't believe that. I, in fact, I think Mark Dever's church will discipline people if they withdraw their membership for no reason. Um, um, our approach would be to find out what's the underlying issue and we want to address that. Yeah. And again, our desire, as I said earlier, you know, we don't want to be heavy handed on anyone. We don't want to lord it over anyone. And I'm not saying that other churches who do this are doing that, but I'm just saying in terms of our preference, we don't, we would prefer to err yeah, on the side of not Yeah. Sometimes people don't attend because of medical issues or whatever. And, uh, and I, I think we owe it to them to s- sort of defer to w- without getting too inquisitive about what's the nature of the medical issue or whatever, we we give them a bit of slack on that sort of thing. But we do try to keep in touch with them. And do you need somebody to come by to visit? Like we have a shut-in ministry. People visit shut-ins all the time. And, and frankly, we're going to deal with imperfect information on this too. You know, there there may be a sin issue in someone's life, but if they are closed mouthed about it and refuse to talk about it and then give some pretext of a reason to move churches. You know, it's possible that they could they could depart, and we we wouldn't know that. And you know, at the end of the day, that's between that person and the Lord. A person who's determined to conceal their sin, you know, they may ultimately get away with it with human beings, but they will not get away with it with the Lord. So the question is, do the elders as a group get together on a retreat or you know events? Not as much as we used to. We used to do a retreat, I think, almost every year or so. But uh... well, there are, I mean. Every elder on the board has relationships with other elders and with, uh, you know, members of the flock. And I would say, uh, you know, as our board has grown, there's also been a concerted thought. Um, we, we, again, don't want to come across as an elitist group. We don't want to show partiality toward one another. And there's a real danger sometimes of elders being clicky. You know, right? That you don't you don't want to portray that to the to the people. That would be an exercise of partiality, arguably. And and I think that uh, that's a great question in terms of I know your motives for asking that question are are pure and wonderful. And yeah, there are times we can sharpen one another, and that's a great thing. But usually those things happen in the course of of day to day existing relationships with other elders, rather than in a kind of larger, more formal aspect. Now that's not to say, look, I think it can be a wonderful thing for elders to go off on a weekend retreat. And again, as Phil said. They've done that in the past, so I'm not criticizing the process. But as this, as time has gone by, as you've seen more fruit of the faithfulness of the preaching here in the in the work of the body, uh, you know, our elders are more often going to be spending time with the congregants. I would say. Yeah. So, if we do anything together these days as an elder, usually.
usually it would be um, we'd have a we'd have an informal dinner once or twice a year, something like that. And we do get together every before every monthly elder meeting. Uh, you know, in terms of in the evenings that we described earlier, there is an elder dinner from six to seven, and there's also other people that are invited, and that can be a great time to kind of catch up on things. But again, we try not to do uh, an undue amount of that for the reasons that I stated about partiality and things like that. Over here in the very very bar back, uh, sitting on the ledge. So how do you determine if an elder is apt to teach, and what do you do if an existing elder is not apt to teach? Well, before before he becomes an elder, he has to demonstrate that he is apt to teach. So, uh, so I, I don't know that we've ever excused anyone from eldership because we found out he couldn't teach. Uh, but um, uh, that happens, obviously, at every level, like the local Bible studies, Sunday school, and all of that. Um, around here, it, it shows up pretty quickly if someone's just simply not a good teacher. People will, I mean, you get feedback. You get feedback sometimes from the people who are being taught. Uh, you can tell if the attendance at one of the neighborhood Bible studies begins to slack off. You can tell there's a problem and typically address it. I'll go around every year or so to each of our Bible studies and just sit in and hear how they teach, that sort of thing. But, uh, yeah, it, it would have to come to your attention some way, and it usually would if the person's just really a bad teacher. And I would add, uh, you know, it's important to remember, too, that, you know, we're a group of people typically here and especially at this church who holds preaching very high and the importance of preaching and praise the Lord for that. But it is apt to teach. So you may have a person who may not be the most dynamic preacher, but who is an excellent Bible teacher, in particular in counseling sessions, you know, in, in small group settings. And, uh, you know, that I think that's an important distinction to keep in mind in terms of the qualification. Yeah, and it is an teach. important one. When I became an elder, I was teaching uh, Sunday school in the junior boys class. And it was Lance Quinn who provoked me to teach adults. I, I was here at Grace Church for 11 years before I ever taught a group of adults larger than my own living room. And... Uh, uh, when Lance asked me to teach in Grace Life, he, he was the one who founded the fellowship group that I now pastor. He asked me to be a guest teacher in there. I think John MacArthur said to him, why are you getting Phil to do that? He's, he's an editor. He's not a teacher. And, uh, and that's, I asked the same question. Why do you want me to do that? I'm an editor, not a teacher. Uh, but he, he, Lance kept pushing me and, uh, you know, it turned out I had both the gift and, uh, sort of latent desire, actually. I'd never really had any craving to get up in front of adults and teach. But once I started doing it, uh, I enjoyed it. And uh, so now I'm I'm stuck in the role. And in terms of how do you deal with an elder that may not be apt to teach, you know, I think that is, to, you know, again, we are to admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with all. And in particular, toward an elder who has served faithfully, you know, I think you want to be patient on that. You know, maybe you can uh, assist and maybe you can, uh, you know, there's ways to encourage, hey, can you maybe uh, develop this further or work on this? Uh, but I, I think that over the course of time, uh, you, you could see that elder, um, that, that elder would come to that conclusion. Let's You're thank on your Phil, own. You're by on the way, your own. for uh, his time. And... Uh, And yeah, we're looking forward to hearing Phil in just a few minutes here, in just uh, in the next session. Uh, yes, over here in front. Sure. Yeah, ask the lawyer that question. Yeah, the, the, the question is, 
church discipline, even let's say you've got a member who's even signed a membership uh, covenant or application that, you know, where the church clearly lays out church discipline, uh, you know, have you heard of situations where there's lawsuits? And uh, yeah, absolutely. I've heard of those situations because in America, a person can sue anyone for just about anything. Right. And, uh, you know, ultimately uh, that is a danger. And it's going to be one of the dangers we're going to see increasingly uh, as time goes on with respect to our increasingly litigious society that is increasingly intolerant of biblical views. Now, uh, the thing that I say in response is that uh, when you're talking about cases of slander or defamation, which is the most common type of lawsuit relating to church discipline, the truth is an absolute defense. And so uh, I, I gave a talk a few years ago on uh, – it was a seminar here at Shepherd's Conference on um, – legal issues in the church, and it was myself and George Crawford and Carlos Chung, all three of us are lawyers or judges here on the Elder Board, and the topic I addressed was actually church discipline. And so the thing I would highlight is, on a factual level, it is so important to make sure you have dotted your I's and crossed your T's, that you have, uh, you know, you've heard both sides, you've investigated the matter, and that you would be able to defend against a human court, because frankly, quite frankly, uh, you know, a human court is nothing compared to the judgment of the Lord in this matter, right? So, uh, you know, certainly we need to make sure we're proceeding. Uh, I've heard so many churches, uh, I happen to be the chairman of the Grace Advance Committee, and so I deal with a number of developing churches, and uh, I deal with not only those developing churches, but those developing churches tell me about churches in their area. And I've heard so many hair-raising tales of church discipline gone bad and gone wrong. And oftentimes it's by a very dictatorial, tyrannical pastor. And, you know, they, they basically are looking, uh, you know, the, the Titus uh, 3 verse on being factious is like the favorite go-to verse for a lot of these pastors. And, and they're, they're throwing people out of the church, like it says in, in 3 John, in terms of diatrophies uh, for, for not, uh, you know, getting along with the pastor on some level. And that really kind of appalls me. And, uh, you know, just to see this kind of shoddy, trumped up uh, church discipline used in that way, when in fact, we know that church discipline in Matthew 18 is actually to be restorative. It's not to be punitive, right? And that's so important to keep in mind is that, look, if we're going to church discipline this person for unrepentant sin, we're going to do it with patience, with pleading, with tears, even, and uh, it's not something to be taken lightly. And I think lawsuits are going to be one thing that uh, could be, you know, frankly, a lawsuit could be unjustified persecution. And that's what I hope it would be in every case here. Uh, or it could be discipline of the Lord for engaging it in, in an unrighteous manner. And so that's uh, something we need to keep in mind. Yes. So the question is, how do you oversee a membership in a body this large in particular, I imagine? And yeah, it, it is a challenge. There's no getting around it. I think there are certain uh, issues that are going to face smaller churches, and there's certain issues that are going to face larger churches, uh, and there's certain issues that will face all churches. But, uh, you know, in terms of one of the issues that we have is, yeah, we do have a large church body. We have about 5,000 actual members here and a number, a couple of thousand of regular attenders who are not members. So to your point, it is a great challenge. Uh, I'm thankful for the system they initiated a few years ago uh, relating to membership and, you know, logging attendance in certain capacities or touch points with the church so that we know people are, are here at least so that we can follow people who leave. But 
a lot of it is done through the fellowship groups, and that's the concept in Exodus where you see uh, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens. Now, again, on the on the theme of not being heavy-handed or lording it over the people, we don't require people to be in fellowship groups, but we do encourage it heavily. Look, this is a place where uh, you know you can practice the one another's on a more intimate and personal level, and why wouldn't you want that? You know, it's a real it's a place where you can form relationships more easily and more readily because it's a smaller group of people. And, you know, if you tried to do that in the worship center, you could do it. I know people who every Sunday they sit in the same pew or the same area of the worship center and they form relationships with the people around them. And I think that's tremendous, but you might have a better opportunity to do that in a smaller group. And, you know, we even, each of those fellowship groups have Bible studies usually. And, and those are even smaller groups where if you're in the fellowship group, you can get involved on a more intimate level. And so that's the concept I would say that we exercise in, in from Exodus of, uh, leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens, in an effort to make this very large church kind of more small and more intimate. And, and again, it's an imperfect system. I, I know that we can't catch everyone. There are people who fall through the cracks, and many times we can catch those people with the kind of membership attendance process we mentioned. But, you know, again, it's, uh, it is something that keeps us up as elders. I know Chris Hamilton, when he does a membership uh, greeting uh, after the membership classes, uh, he says he looks out at the, you know, 50, 80, 100 people in that class for the new members. He's like, you all scare me, right? That, that's what he tells him. And, and the reason he says that is because I'm accountable to the Lord for you now. And so that's a weighty matter. Yes, sir. So the question is, how do you understand the requirement for an elder not to be a recent convert, and in particular in a newer church setting? Well, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, there is certainly that requirement, and there's also in um, 1 Timothy 5, if I recall correctly. Um, well, I'm having trouble finding it at the moment. But, um, you know, th- there is also that the notion that we don't want to lay hands on an elder too quickly, right? And uh, I think both of those would be uh, a very strong admonition that we have to be watchful of these matters. And, look, Scripture does not set a specific period of time, but certainly at our church, you know, we wouldn't – we wouldn't lay hands on someone that quickly. We want to observe an elder uh, for years, really, as they minister here. Uh, my own personal elder process, I was one of, I'm one of the more recent elders. I think I've been here for, like I said, almost five years. But uh, the, uh, the people that were involved in my life and overseeing me were observing my life for about four years, uh, you know, from the time where I was kind of starting the elder process to the time that it was ultimately brought on the board. And so that was uh, the amount of time we took. Now, in a smaller church, I'm not saying you have to adhere to that, but especially for a new convert. I mean, we know from Scripture that sometimes the seed falls on rocky soil. Sometimes it falls on thorny soil. Sometimes it falls on good soil. And uh, it's really, really important that uh, – I mean, look, if we're, if we're advocating for regenerate church membership, certainly we want, we want regenerate church eldership, Right. You know, and, and so, you know, just making sure that this is not a case of rocky or thorny soil from the scriptures is absolutely critical. So for a new convert especially, I would wait a healthy amount of time. And uh, for the specific reason it says in the scriptures, you don't want that person to come puffed up and then be uh, beguiled by the devil ultimately. But uh, even for a not a recent convert, you've got someone brand new that's come to your, comes to their church with a very, very solid history of Christian ministry, you still want to view that person very carefully and watch that person and see how that person 
performs the work of the ministry. And, uh, you know, there may be people who are elder qualified and would be a great elder for certain churches, but it may be for this particular local body that that elder, you know, would not be the right elder. And I think that that's something to consider. And uh, how you make those decisions really is the course of wisdom. And uh, it's uh, something to keep in mind. 522. Thank you so much. I'm going to read that First uh, Timothy 5.20. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. We'll do one more question and then we'll end. Anyone really have a burning question they want to, they want to ask? Go ahead. So the question is, since we as a larger elder board don't necessarily deal with hiring and firing decisions, what does that look like in terms of who does that and uh, how are they discipled? And again, I'm going to say in most cases, I, I would feel that the elder board ought to be involved in the hiring and firing decisions, especially if it's a smaller church, a smaller elder board. These are the most some of the most critical decisions you're going to have for the sake of leadership. So I want to make that very clear in case that was unclear before. But here over the course of years, again, we've delegated to a staff that's very trustworthy uh, we have many employees here, and so we as elders wouldn't be able to, uh, you know, we're, we're just not going to engage on the level of uh, deciding upon whether we should hire a pastoral intern or not, right? That's going to be the pastor over the staff pastor that's already employed that's over that area that's going to make those decisions most prominently and maybe the people in that staff pastor's orbit. So, um, you know, that's the type of situation where we leave a lot of these hiring and firing decisions to the staff. Michael Mahoney is just a brilliant uh, executive pastor. He's been doing a number of the, uh, you know, he's speaking, spoken at uh, the introductions in many of the cases here. And, and we really, he, uh, he has a great um, staff that he uh, oversees. Uh, we have, uh, the, uh, I believe there are weekly staff meetings. Uh, there are staff chapels. Uh, these are ways to kind of help equip the staff and uh, to kind of build them up, um, you know, these types of meetings. Uh, and frankly, there is accountability too. You know, if a person is, you know, there, there's a higher accountability when you're a member of the employed staff because you have certain, um, you know, whatever the benchmarks are or whatever the requirements are, or the criteria are of the job, someone is overseeing that, right? And, uh, you know, whether that's Michael Mahoney or whether that's, uh, you know, just some of the individual um, pastors that are over certain areas. And so that constantly happens and, you know, just is evaluated. And again, we do try to be patient with all, as I said before, from first thus. First Thessalonians 5.14, uh, but, uh, you know, there are times where we have to make a staff decision of, of firing, and, you know, a lot of times it's like, look, we're not firing you from the kingdom of God. You know, we don't have that ability, of course, but we're, you know, just in terms of a paid employee here, it, it, that that's a privilege. It's not an entitlement, and so, you know, the ultimately, uh, you know, I think they're one of the elders on our staff here is a man I really love and respect named Dave Muxlow. He's, uh, he's an older gentleman and he's the head of our operations here. And, uh, he's like, look, there doesn't need to be a lot of drama with this. There really shouldn't be. Even Paul and Barnabas were able to have a sharp disagreement and separate, uh, from one another. And, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, look, it's just, you can go serve the Lord better in a different way, perhaps. And we'll also, continue striving to serve the Lord, you know, in a different way. And, and really, uh, I, I know it can be so personal and intensely personal at times because it's like an a assessment of your capability. Uh, but, you know, sometimes it's just, look, you know, maybe this isn't the right position. You even heard Pastor John talk about um, in another session, I believe, um, just sometimes you might move a person to a different area to see if maybe that would be better for their giftedness. And again, you want to be patient with all. Uh, but sometimes there is that ultimate decision that, look, it's best that we separate and uh, we'll, uh, we'll both move on for the sake of the kingdom and God's glory. 
Well, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. We'll uh, say a quick word of prayer. Thank you for these men. We just pray you would bless their ministries, bless the rest of this conference, and we just rejoice, Lord, in all things in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.